It's so fun seeing the way the camp is growing, how many more young people we have every year. And I'll tell you a couple of things that I heard over and over again. The, the other leaders, the, the other pastors commented on our workers that, and what a, what a joy our workers are. So any of you who have ever worked with a teen camp, you know often the counselors are your biggest trouble. And it's just not that way with the group that we get to send. The other thing, every time I spoke with our workers, they commented on the behavior of our young people. You guys did a tremendous job. You were a joy to be with, and you represented Grace Baptist and your parents well. So thank you for that. And here's the way that you can repay all the labor that's been put in you. Just serve God for the rest of your life. That's, that's the point of all of it. Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. It's been three weeks since I preached at Grace Baptist. I was preaching in Canton three weeks ago, and then we've had guest speakers, even though I was here for the last two weeks. So I'm excited to get back into the book of Acts. We are continuing to look at the beginning of our story. The book of Acts is how was the church established? How did, the, they, how did Jesus Christ Establish the church. How did his apostles continue it? And, and what happened when the Holy Spirit of God empowered the church? Now, we have been in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. If you look at Acts chapter 3 and verse 6, this is where the healing of the lame man. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they took him by the hand, and he jumped up, and he's walking, and then running, and then jumping, and he's just so excited. And everyone saw it, and that gave an opportunity for Peter to preach the gospel. But then if we get to chapter 4 and verse 1, And as they spake unto the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people, and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So these spiritual leaders... They were grieved. Why? Because Jesus Christ was being preached. And not only was Jesus Christ being preached, but the resurrection from the dead was being preached. And of course, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And it's very difficult when you believe in the resurrection of the dead, and then someone, when you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and then someone rises from the dead. That kind of really messes up your teaching. And so they didn't want people to teach that. I'm reminded, I mentioned D. James Kennedy this morning. How many of you remember D. James Kennedy, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church? He had uh, an evangelism uh, program called Evangelism Explosion. And our method of Operation Go was taken from that by a guy guy named David Wood. But I heard Dr. Kennedy talking about where he learned his evangelism plan. So he had gone to preach at a Baptist church and... He was the Presbyterian evangelist coming in. And so the pastor asked him to go and make a visit with him. And this, this visit was, he was kind of a tough character. So Kennedy did his best to give the guy the gospel. And being a good Calvinistic Presbyterian, Kennedy said, I just assumed he was not of the elect. You know, some Presbyterians teach that, that if you are, that, that God chose some people to be saved and they will be saved. And he chose some people not to be saved and so they can't be saved. So the elect are those that will be saved, and the non-elect are those who will not be saved. So Kennedy said, um, I just assumed he was not of the elect. So the pastor took over, and after a few minutes, that man was on his knees receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. And Kennedy said, 
You have no idea what a shock it was for me to see someone not of the elect receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. And so what Kennedy did was he took that experience and he said, wait a minute, I've been taught one thing, and now I have seen something from the Word of God that changed everything for me. And I would imagine millions of people have been saved. They've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ because of uh, Dr. Kennedy's teaching on how to give the gospel to someone. Isn't that a blessing? And so what happened was he saw something that was different than what he had been taught. And as a man of God, do you know what he did? He changed what he was teaching to align with what the Bible said. That's what we are to do. That's not what these religious leaders did. They were teaching a doctrine that is not true. And when God demonstrated the error of their ways by rising from the dead, they didn't change their teaching. They wanted those men to stop talking about Jesus. And so what does Peter do? Peter stands up. In verse 8, chapter 4, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, he was lame, he couldn't walk, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Now, what did they not like? In verse 2, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they were mad that they were preaching it. So what did Peter do? He preached it again. Very interesting. Look at verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. This is Peter speaking in front of the religious leaders and speaking in front of the people. Neither is there any salvation. I'm sorry. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's pretty bold, isn't it? Now, that's all. We covered that a couple of weeks ago. Now here, this is our new passage for today. Let's start reading in verse 13. Now, when they, this is the the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish leaders of the temple, the captain of the guard, all of these people, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. He's standing right there. This man who could never walk. He is actually walking. What are they going to say against it? They couldn't. Verse 15. Now, everybody look at your Bible. I want you to see this. This is so cool. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak 
the things which we have both, which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. Lord, help us as we understand what's going on in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's my plan. We've had kind of a long service already. There's a lot that I want to cover in this text, so I promise I'm going to get you out of here quick. But here's, here's what will help me. Stay plugged in. I want you to see what God has done because there's some instruction for us in this text, some things that we are to learn. My message today is taken from verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness, when they saw the boldness. So what are the components of this narrative that will help us have some handles to take home? Because I can't heal anybody. I'm not going to perform a miracle like this so that I can then be bold about it. So what can I learn from the apostles and what instruction are we given for what we can do and what we have today. So the first thing I want you to see in verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. It's interesting. Listen to what they could have reacted to. They could have reacted to the healing. They just did an unbelievable miracle that a man whose feet from birth were obviously incapable of use Now, strength and coordination have come into those legs. And not only had they seen it happen, he's standing there with them. This man that can't stand is standing. That's not what they noticed. How about when Peter, a fisherman, was able to stand up and he had, it seemed to them, an encyclopedic knowledge of the Old Testament. That's not what they noticed. How about all of the people that wanted to gather around, their ability to grab a crowd, their ability to lead men? That's not what they noticed. What did they notice? How bold they were. How bold they were. And they took note. What did they take note? That they had been with Jesus. Now, here's the way that this is normally taught. If you spend time with Jesus, you will act like Jesus. But the way they want you to act in order to be like Jesus is you just need to be meek and quiet and harmless as a dove and gentle and just nice because God wants you to be happy. Do you think that's what they saw from Peter? They didn't see his meekness. And meekness is a good characteristic. The Bible talks about Moses in the book of Numbers. He talked to Miriam and Aaron. He said, were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He's the meekest man on the earth. Meekness is good. But that's not the characteristic they noticed. The characteristic they noticed was their boldness. Now remember, this is the same Peter that was cowering and hiding from a little peasant girl. A little servant girl. Now he's standing before the Sanhedrin, standing in the temple, boldly proclaiming who Jesus Christ is. And not only who Jesus Christ is, the responsibility, the culpability of that nation and those na- that nation's leaders in undermining the work of God. 
They saw his boldness. So my question today is what do people see when we are testifying for Christ? Do they see boldness? Or do they see fear? Do they see acquiescence to the culture? Well, that's not socially acceptable. How many of you think Peter was socially acceptable? Standing up and indicting the whole nation in the temple to the leaders. You know, we live in a time, probably the, the number one comment that I've gotten, say, in the last six months is, I like your preaching, but I don't like it when you talk about politics. So you know what we're going to do today? We're going to talk about politics. Who were the apostles confronting? They were confronting the nation and the leaders of the nation for what they had done. And yet we live in a time in Christianity where Christians are so soft that I, I, don't, I just don't understand it. So we have an opportunity as citizens of the state of Ohio coming up here very soon to vote on issue. Is it issue one? Is that what it's called? And just, you can go to sleep after I say this. Just vote yes. And why do we need to vote yes? What is issue one about? The Constitution of the state of Ohio has been amended 172 times, which makes it almost meaningless. So to amend the, the United States Constitution... You have to have approval of two-thirds of the states after it goes through the entire legislative process. So what issue two is trying to do is you have to pass a bar of 60% to, do, to, to, to pass a law or an ordinance that would change the Constitution. And the reason why this is important is when the casino uh, issue was coming through the states, what they were, or to the, through the state of Ohio, what they were able to do is make it to where you only needed a 50% majority to get that done. And so through all kinds of different advertising and pushes, they got to 52%. Here's the problem. This is what we're afraid of for the fall, that the next thing they're going to do is they're going to pass an abortion amendment that requires the state to be able to do abortion whether the parents want it or not. They would allow a child to get an abortion whether the parents want it or not. And it would also deal with all this transgender issue. So, you know, at school, they can't give your kids medication without parental permission. What they want to pass is for your child to be able to be counseled and be counseled to have surgery with no, with no input from the parents at all. And so what, what issue one will do, if you vote yes for that, it'll help us to make sure that our rights and our morality is codified into law. Now, an example that's given, Awake America, that's our friend um, Dan Wolven over in Columbus. He's the Ohio representative for Awake America. He said this. Uh, he said, look at the history of Michigan's constitution as a warning. This process, similar to what they're trying to accomplish in Ohio, 
codified a fairly conservative state into now one that is permanently liberal and will probably never change. And so sometimes people will make a statement, something like this, you can't legislate morality. Have you ever heard someone say that? You can't legislate morality. That's just a false statement. The only thing you can legislate is morality. The question is whose morality will be legislated. Now, very clear. You all know I'm very libertarian. I I don't think we need more laws. I think we need less laws. Okay? It's very important. But what we want to make sure that we, we have a system, a constitutional system in our state that allows righteousness to overcome evil. And that's what issue one is about. So let's make sure that we take a stand on that. Let's go back to our text. The first thing that I wanted you to see there in verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, what did they, what did they perceive? They saw the boldness. And what does it mean to perceive something? They took notice of it, but this is kind of cool. They felt it. That when you perceive something, that's something that just kind of comes over you. You realize it because there's something in the air. You feel it. What were they feeling? The boldness. The power of Peter's person. His presence. His, we're talking about Peter. His statesmanship. That's pretty cool. That's what that word means. So, again, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived, what did they perceive? Wait a minute. These guys are unlearned and ignorant men. Unlearned and ignorant men. What does that mean? They didn't go to my school. That's what it always means. Whenever someone is considered unlearned, that means they don't have the approved education. They don't have the approved letters. So they're unlearned. But then the word ignorant. What is that? This is fun. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. It's idioti. They're idiots. These are just... And so don't miss this. This is a class structure. They're not from the upper priestly class like us. These are just the the hoi polloi. <laughs> these are just the Nathaniel enjoyed that back there. That's the, the, these are the unwashed masses. You know, like where we have to sit on the airplane, right? It, it's really important that you get this. These men they didn't have a right to speak because they didn't have the right letters. They didn't have the right birth. They certainly didn't have the right language. They are unlearned. They're ignorant. Um, this is fun. Look with me at, keep your place here in Acts. Go to Matthew chapter 26. What did Peter sound like? Look at verse 73. So this is, again, I mentioned this a minute ago. This is when Jesus Christ is on the cross. Peter is there 
And he's being very timid. He denies Christ in verse 72, verse 73. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, and immediately the cock crew. So what's, what's happening in this text is the way that Peter talked revealed he was from Galilee. He didn't have the right diction. He didn't have the right elocution. He didn't pronounce his Hebrew, or he didn't pronounce his Greek or his Aramaic, whatever it was he was speaking in. He didn't pronounce his words the way that an educated person would. It's like somebody said, I'd rather see somebody say, I seen, than someone say, I saw, who had never seen. And so what's happening in this context is Peter is just a fisherman. Not only that, but Peter was was pretty well known. It's said that he was a very large man. And so he couldn't really hide. And so here comes Peter. He's just this, this big, fighting, massive fisherman, ill-spoken, and yet now standing up and speaking with the power of God, challenging the authority. And he's unlearned and ignorant. And you know what's fun? We independent Baptists have always been identified as being the uneducated, the ignorant, we don't know what we're talking about people. Why is that? If you go all the way back to the beginning of our nation, back to the colonies, when the pilgrims and the Puritans came, they came for religious liberty but they didn't believe in granting religious liberty. They wanted to be able to worship the way that they chose to worship, but they didn't want you to be able to, wor- to worship the way that you choose to be worshipped, or, or you, that you would choose to worship. And there was an act of uniformity that had been passed under Queen Elizabeth. It was affirmed under Charles II. And this act of uniformity states that the only institution that can educate ministers is the Church of England. And so if you have not been educated in a university, in a school, by the Church of England, then you are considered uneducated. You don't have the authority to marry people. So let's say that Patrick and Heather came to my church and they want to be married. I marry them before God and before God's people. They would be considered living in adultery by the Church of England because that pastor does not have the authority because he's not educated in a Church of England. So they have always been called uneducated. How many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon? Have you heard of Charles Spurgeon? Spurgeon never went to college. And so the man who's considered the greatest modern preacher in the English language, he didn't have any formal education. There was something called the downgrade controversy. There was a group of Baptists. It was called the Baptist Union. It had been infiltrated by liberalism and the kind of liberalism where they were teaching that Jesus Christ is not God. And so Spurgeon preached a famous sermon, the the church on the downgrade, and pulled out of the Baptist Union. And Spurgeon had a Bible college where he was training pastors. And those young men turned their back on Spurgeon. Because they were buying into this modernistic teaching on the scriptures. 
And so Spurgeon, who was prone to depression, had retreated to Mentone, France. And he was there, and he, I have a letter in his autobiography that he wrote to his wife. And the doctors were coming to see him. Dr. McLaren and Dr. Parker and Dr. Clifford. These were all men of letters. These were all leaders in the Baptist movement that had not only undergraduate degrees, they had postgraduate degrees and then doctorate degrees. And they were coming to question Spurgeon. And Spurgeon was nervous because he was going to have to answer to the doctors. I want you to understand how silly this is. Charles Spurgeon could in one sitting read four books this size and then quote entire chapters from memory. One time before breakfast, somebody gave him a book. At lunch, he and other pastors were discussing the book. Spurgeon just listened and then recited the last chapter from memory and cleared up their understanding of it. He wrote 300 personal letters a week. He wrote a book every three months on top of 64 volumes of sermons. That's Spurgeon. He had an orphanage with over 5,000 children in his orphanages. All these other pastors, all of these works that Spurgeon was doing, and yet here he is afraid because some preachers are coming who have more education than Spurgeon does. How many of you have never heard of John Clifford? How many of you have heard of Spurgeon? Apparently Spurgeon did okay. But this teaching of being unlearned That has been the attack against God's people all the way from the beginning. These, this in my hand, this is the Laws and Liberties of Massachusetts. This was published in 1648. So in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, this was the law. And so this is a book of the general laws and liberties. And so this is what was allowed and what was not allowed. Here on the first page... Here's an article talking about the Anabaptists. So Baptist is a shortening of the name Anabaptist, which means to rebaptize. So at the Massachusetts Bay Colonies, the first thing that they talk about is ability. They talk about actions and then age to uh, be able to vote. And then the Anabaptists. The first page. Listen to what it says. For as much as experience hath plentifully and proven... And proved that since the first arising of the Anabaptists about a hundred years past, so they arose in England in the 1500s, they have been the incendiaries of commonwealths and the infectors of persons in main matters of religion and the troublers of churches in most places where they have been. And they who have held the baptizing of infants unlawful, why don't we baptize babies? Because there are no babies being baptized in the Bible. There's no command to do that. So we believe it's wrong for the church to do it, all right? So this is the indictment against him. So what it says is that the baptizing of infant unlawful have usually held other errors or heresies together therewith. Though as heretics used to do, they have concealed the same until they espied a fit advantage and opportunity to vent them by way of question or scruple. And whereas divers of this kind have since our coming into New England appeared among ourselves, some whereof as others before them have denied the ordinance of magistracy. I won't get into that. Or the fullness of making war, or the lawfulness of making war. What is the lawfulness of making war? They could make war, the government could make war on another people for religious reasons. 
So Baptists have always said, I will not go and kill somebody because they believe differently than I do. And they refused to serve in the military if that's what was going to happen. They were not pacifists. They simply would not kill people in the name of religion. All right? That's what this is talking about. Then it says, um, and their inspection into any breach of the first table. So what's the first table of the law? So the first table of the law is thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The, the, that first table, you cannot enforce that with law because that's the, the what Baptists have always taught is that is the, the relationship of man with God. That cannot be governed by man. The second table of the law, thou shalt not steal. Laws can control that. And so Baptists were saying you cannot mandate a person's relationship with God by law. Well, it's against the law in Massachusetts to teach that. That's what this is saying. Um, so it goes on, and so what is the what is the sentence? It says that what what are they to do? How, how is it adjudicated? It is therefore ordered by this court and authority thereof that if any person or persons in this jurisdiction shall either openly condemn or oppose the baptizing of infants or go about secretly to seduce others from the approbation or use thereof or shall purposefully depart the congregation at the administration of the ordinance. So if there's a baby being baptized, you're at church, but when it's time to baptize the babies, you leave because you disagree with that. What's going to happen? They shall appear to the court willfully and obstinately to continue therein after due means of conviction. Every such person shall be sentenced to banishment. And when they banished you, they took all your stuff. So Henry Dunster was at the beating of Obadiah Holmes. Obadiah Holmes, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but he was a Baptist preacher. And uh, he was beaten for, having, for, for his faith there in Boston. And at his trial, he represented believers' baptism from the Scriptures. Henry Dunster was the first president of Harvard University. And as president of Harvard, he was there and he saw Obadiah Holmes' defense of baptism. So he went home and he started studying it. He became convinced of believers' baptism. So when he had a child, his daughter, he did not bring his daughter to the church to have her baptized as an infant. And so the government took all of Henry Dunster's property and banished him. The property that Dunster had was 112, 114 acres of property that is now Harvard University. It was stolen from a Baptist because he did not believe in infant baptism. What happened to these people? They were, they were convicted and they were called heretics because they were considered to be unlearned. In England in 1612, under the reign of King James, there was a man named Edward Whiteman. Edward Whiteman was a Baptist preacher in Litchfield, and so he was arrested for being a Baptist. Listen to what this account says. So this is a 1651 book on the, the life of James. And so it says this, And although said Edward Whiteman hath since the said sentence pronounced against him, been given very charitably moved and or been often very charitably moved and exhorted by the said bishop as by many other godly grave and learned divines to dissuade revoke and remove him from the said blasphemies or said blasphemous heretical and anabaptistical positions yet he arrogantly and willfully persisteth to continue in the same and so he was burned at the stake in Litchfield in 1612 
The last person burned at the stake in Litchfield was a Baptist preacher. Why? Because he could not be persuaded by the learned bishops. What had, what had Edward Whiteman learned? He had learned what the Bible said about salvation. He had learned what the Bible said about believers' baptism. He had learned what the Bible said about the church and the state. And he was willing to stand up in boldness and speak the truth. And notice what the laws and liberties of Massachusetts said in 1648. Notice what this Michael Spark biography of King James said about Edward Whiteman in 1651. What is it that these men were doing? By their very presence and boldness, it was stirring up the people against the educated class. What is it that's going on in our culture when the parents come before the Board of Education and they say, this will not be taught to my children? What happens at these boards of education all over the country? Well, we're the experts. We're the ones who choose this. Now listen, if you all know the Board of Education in our community, make sure that you are in front of them, that they that you know what's being taught in the schools, that you know what books are in the libraries, that they know that there are some Christians who are there, and they know that we're here because of our boldness. We will not sit down. We will not be quiet. We are bold Christians out in our community. Remember, they saw the boldness. They perceived it. They felt the boldness. What is it that changed everyone? How did we end up from, how did we go from being the bold preachers of the gospel, standing against the man to want to be accepted by the culture? How did that happen? This is a book, it's The Work of Christ Consummated in Seven Dispensations, written by a guy named J.R. Graves. And he's talking about Ephesus and Laodicea, and we know that those identify different periods of church history. This book was written in, just so you know, it's nothing new. This book was written in 1883, 1883. So he says this about the Laodicean age. As the Ephesian church symbolized the apostolic age, the first period, so the Laodicean, the last period, and the terms used to describe its character are symbolic of the general condition of the churches of the period covered by the symbol. The very name selected to symbolize the period, like the names of the other churches, is significant. It means rights of the people. So what he goes on to say is what happened with the Laodicean church is what was happening in his day. And he believed that Laodicea, remember what Laodicea teaches. Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, Behold, I have somewhat against thee, because thou art neither cold nor hot, and I would that thou wert either cold or hot. So then because thou art neither cold or hot, I would, I would spew you out of my mouth. They made him sick. That's, that's what Jesus thought about the Laodicean church. How did Baptists who exploded in the colonies... They exploded in our new nation. How is it that by 1883, most of the Baptist seminaries have been overtaken by liberalism? How did that happen? J.R. Graves said it happened in 1776. When Baptists no longer had to stand 
for the opportunity to have freedom. Now, he should have said 1782, 1789 with the ratification of the Constitution. That's in the Bill of Rights. That's when we truly got our religious liberty. But let's take it right there. From that point on, now we could preach whatever we chose to preach. We had the liberty to do that. But then what we started looking for was the acceptance of the other institutions. So Brown College, it's Brown University now. The first president of Brown was a man named Francis Whalen. Francis Whalen was an amazing preacher of the gospel. He wrote a book called The Principles and Practice of Baptists. He wrote the first economics textbook in the United States, The Elements of Political Economy. He wrote the first ethics book that was used in the United States, The Elements of Moral Economy. He was an amazing person. The elective program in universities, Francis Whalen created that. Academic rigor, the, what a person went through at Brown University to become educated in the Bible, it caused many people to lose their health. It was that difficult. And what were they doing? They were wanting the approval of Princeton. They were wanting the approval of Harvard. They were wanting the approval of Union Theological Seminary or the, the approval of Andover. They were wanting the approval of these other institutions to say, we Baptists are as well-educated as you Presbyterians. We Baptists are as well-educated as you Congregationalists. And so rather than requiring knowledge of the Scriptures and upholding the authority of the Word of God, the, the, the authority and the truth of the Bible and the, the protection of the Scriptures moved from the churches to the colleges. And so, someone would come in and say, well, Dr. So-and-so said, Dr. So-and-so is teaching us that, well, maybe Moses didn't really write the first five books of the Bible. Maybe Isaiah was written by two men, Isaiah and Deutero-Isaiah. Maybe the Bible is not accurate in areas of science or history. And that what we need to look for in the Bible is just spiritual truth. And that moved to an entire doctrinal position called neo or new orthodoxy. The word orthodox means you agree with the, with the creeds, the great ecumenical creeds that would have gone back to the Council of Nicaea and all of those councils that came after. And so someone, in order for someone to be orthodox, they had to believe in the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the, 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 the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the visible return of Jesus Christ to the earth. That if you, you have to believe those things in order to be considered orthodox. Neo-Orthodox changed that. The man named Emil Bruner and some others, Karl Barth, what they said was we had to, that the Bible is not the Word of God. The Bible becomes the Word of God where it speaks to you. And here's how this made its way in the 20th century into our churches. At the, at the ladies' Bible study, so a lady would stand up and say, let me tell you what this passage means to me. Well, if you had never been born, does the passage have no meaning? See, it doesn't matter what the passage means to me. What matters is what does the passage mean? And it means what it says. We take it literally, right? All of that changed. Why? Because people wanted to be accepted. Oberlin University, I went there years ago, took an evangelistic team there. And they had a banner, so this would have been in 1988, 1989. 
There's Finney Chapel. So Charles G. Finney, the great revivalist, he was a part of founding of Oberlin University. It's hard to believe that was a Christian college. It's one of the most liberal colleges in America. And so they built the Finney Chapel. And so it, it says on Finney Chapel that it's for the gathering daily to study the Word of God. But there was a big banner over the door to Finney Chapel that said, Lesbians be loud. There's a, there's a monument for missionaries that died, and the monument's covered in beer cans and graffiti. and Everything had changed at Oberlin. And listen to what Finney said. Now, Finney had some, some messed up doctrine. I'm not a Finneyite by any means. But he's, he had said that when the university, talking about Oberlin, when education becomes the core, the school will cease to be what it's supposed to be. When education overrules the truth of God and the power of God, now we're in trouble. And that's why the early fundamentalists were all called uneducated. Because all of the seminaries had been influenced with this compromised, evil undermining of the Word of God. You all have heard of the famous evangelist Billy Sunday. He used to play for the White Sox, and he got saved at the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. And he used to say, if the Bible says one thing and scholarship says another, scholarship can go straight to hell. I don't... I don't know if we should use that language. Well, let's just use the language of the Bible. Accursed. And what does accursed mean? Damned to hell. That's what it means. We have gotten so soft in Christianity that we have allowed the culture to temper our speech. We've allowed the culture to cow are preachers. You know what it means to cow? Cows are not aggressive. Cows can be led around. They are not leaders. They have cowed our preachers. That's that's the world that we live in. And here's why. Here's why. Hey, listen to what I'm saying. We have an effeminate Christianity. There's a reason why the Bible says, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Who is it that every political leader has to appease these days? The soccer moms. The soccer moms. You say, well, wait a minute. I'm a soccer mom. I don't care. Do right. Do right. Encourage your leaders to stand. Encourage your leaders to speak the truth. I've said this for years. I think our politicians, if they would just tell the truth, they get on the abortion thing. Someone will say, well, what about in the cases of rape and incest? Well, what my answer to that would be, well, my opponent wants to kill the baby and save the rapist. I would say kill the rapist and save the baby. That's the difference. And everyone is so soft in our culture. What happened when Peter and John stood up? They saw the boldness of them. They felt the boldness of them. How do you feel the boldness? With what you just felt right there. The power of the speaking. I mean, I got a voice like Kermit the Frog. I don't have a big, bold voice, but I can tell you this, you're going to hear what this preacher has to say because that's who we are supposed to be as Christians. Now, how many of you can tell I'm for education? 
Right? I have a book or two. I've, I've colored in almost all of them. <laughs> I'm for education, but education must be beneath the authority of the Word of God. And when, the, when education says, well, this part of the Bible is not true, well, that education is wrong, and it is a damnable heresy. Where to stand? That's who we are. Look at what else happens in this text. Back in Acts. Oh, can we do one thing? This is so fun. So we're going to go to Acts 4, but get to John 7 also. John 7. Oh, I got to be done. John 7. Look at verse 15. Remember, they're saying that these are uneducated or unlearned. Can we go to Acts 4 first and then John 7? Look at what this says. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, so Acts 4 and verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. They marveled. And what did they say? And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Go to John 7 and verse 15. Anything similar here? So look at verse 14 for the context. John 7 and verse 14. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Wait a minute. He's just a Galilean. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Listen to his accent. He doesn't have, how does he know letters seeing he's unlearned? And what did they do? They marveled. What happens in Acts chapter 4? They're marveling because what happened? They had been with Jesus. Sometimes we take that in a spiritual way. No, no. Nearness is likeness. They had been with Jesus so much that when Peter spoke, he sounded like Jesus. The words that Peter preached were the same words that Jesus preached. The scriptures that Peter quoted were the same scriptures that Jesus quoted. The same tone that Jesus had when he preached and indicted the people, that's the same tone that Peter used when he preached and indicted the people. The Bible instructs how Jesus would speak in the book of Isaiah. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgressions. That's why preachers preach the way that they do. When George Whitfield would preach, uh, Benjamin Franklin, he wanted to hear how far he could get away from Whitfield and still hear the preaching. And he walked off a mile and a half and could still hear Whitfield preach. Whitfield would preach until his throat bled. But now, come, we're going to talk about God. It's a different world, man. It is a different world. What about Paul? The apostle Paul was educated. Listen to what Paul said about himself. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1.
verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And look at what it says. Who was before a blasphemer? Look, Paul was the best educated man in the world. No one had a better education than the Apostle Paul. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He would have had the entire Old Testament memorized. Okay? No one was better educated than Paul. So think about this. Who was before a blasphemer, educated but a blasphemer, a persecuted, a persecutor, educated but a persecutor, and injurious, educated but injurious. But look, but I obtained mercy because I did it. What's that next word? What are the apostles? Unlearned and ignorant. Go back to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to drop back to Acts chapter 13. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 3 and verse 11. (laughs) Acts 3 and verse 17. Acts 3 and verse 17. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance you did it is also your rulers. Remember what we said about that? That's one of the greatest verses on mercy in the Bible. If they had done it intentionally, there's no forgiveness for intentional murder, but you did it ignorantly. Why did Paul obtain mercy in 1 Timothy 1.13? Because he did it ignorantly. He was educated and wrong. Educated and wrong. Folks, we need to make sure that just because someone has high education... And because someone has a vocabulary that's beyond your vocabulary, we need to make sure that we don't allow them to move us from confidence and faith in the Word of God. So let's finish this up in Acts chapter 4. So the components of the narrative, they saw the boldness that was visible. They, They perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant. Then they marveled because they were able to communicate this way. But they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. So what is the evidence? What happened to them because they had been with Jesus? Number one, they had their master's boldness. Did Jesus ever appear to be afraid? Why? He had no reason to be afraid. And so now they had their master's boldness. They had their master's authority. That tone that Jesus Christ would use, that's the tone that Peter is using now. They had their master's authority. And then they had their master's use of Scripture. Where do we get our boldness? Where do we get our authority? From the Word of God. And then they also had their master's power. I want you to think about one thing and we'll be done. They had been with Jesus for three and a half years before the cross. They had seen Jesus speak. They had heard him. As John said, that which we have seen with our eyes, that we have handled with our hands. They had lived with him for three and a half years. Being with Jesus was not enough. What changed? The resurrection and the indwelling Holy Spirit. What do we have now that the apostles did not have when they were walking the earth before the crucifixion. We have the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. The thing that changed Peter was the resurrection and the indwelling Holy Spirit. What's going to change us? 
a recognition, a consciousness of the resurrected Christ and a submission to the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. That's what we need. We need people to see our boldness, but not the boldness of my personality, not the boldness of my education. They need to see the boldness of the word of God in me. What did Paul say about his churches? You are our epistle. You are our letter known and read of all men. You are the Bible to people. Do they recognize your boldness or do they recognize your timidity? Do they recognize your truthfulness or do they recognize your equivocation? Are you standing or are you being blown about with every wind of doctrine? You see, what is the difference between us and the early church? What is the difference? Simply, belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Belief in the word of God. And they didn't even have it written yet. Belief in the indwelling Holy Spirit and his ability to use me. How cool is that? So what are we to be? Let's finish the text. Verse 14, and beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. You know the greatest power that you have? You're not going to heal somebody's legs. Now, God can still heal somebody's legs. I'm sure God still does that. You can't. Amen? But you can point to a changed life. See, here's the issue. They had that man standing right there, so they couldn't say anything. When we live the way that we are to live, when we preach the way that we are to preach, when we defend truth the way that we are to defend truth, we will change people's lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that person standing there, nobody can say anything against it. This is a changed life. Verse 15. But when they commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, so verse 16 on, How do we know that took place? How does Luke know this to write it down? That's what inspiration is. The Holy Spirit told him what happened. There's all this source criticism. Where did Luke get his information? He must have had an inside source. He did, the Holy Spirit of God. Saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth no man in his name. How are you going to threaten somebody that just saw somebody rise from the dead? It's awesome. Verse 18, and they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. Listen to you or to God, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them. Now look at that, because of the people. I said I was going to be done a minute ago, and I lied. Um, I, I did want to remember to say this to you. So we got this vote that's going to happen on issue one. That shouldn't be the only time that Christians are heard in our government. Our leaders, whether it's J.D. Vance or whether it's our congressman or, or whether it's uh, 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 Governor DeWine or whoever it is, they ought to 
fear us. Because we can vote them out. Not to fear us because we're going to riot. That's not who we are. They should fear us because we're going to be so bold we can remove their power. I was in Washington, D.C. I was in a meeting with Rob Portman. And there were several of us preachers there, and he's just glad-handing us. And then he got to Kevin Folger, who's pastor of Cleveland Baptist Church, you know, thousands of members. And so he's shaking hands and shook my hand, and I was standing right next to Brother Folger. And he went like this, oh, Kevin, and I I know that you disagree because he had just done the gay rights thing. I know that you disagree with me on this. You should have seen his whole demeanor and, listen, his fear standing before Kevin Folger. Bloody Mary, I'm sorry, Mary Queen of Scots in England with John Knox, the old Protestant preacher. He gave her so much trouble that the queen announced publicly, can anyone deliver me from this meddlesome priest? Listen, somebody might be able to kill the preacher, but they can never shut him up. They can kill a Christian, but they can never show us up, shut us up. Why were they afraid to persecute Peter and John? Why were they afraid? Because of the people. If we are bold enough to raise the people up through the truth, that's the only way we can make a difference in our nation. Amen? We can't do that by cowing the preacher. We can't do that by asking our leaders to be softer. We need to encourage the boldness. Last, this will be the last thing I'll say. I've told you before, but I think of it often. I had the privilege of going to Switzerland and seeing where Felix Manns, the Baptist preacher, was drowned by the, the Lutheran Zwingli. Zwingli said, if he wants to be baptized, let him be baptized. And so they put chains on him. They rode him out into the middle of the Lamat River, and they drowned him to death. Two weeks later, they put his wife in a bag and threw her off a bridge. Why? Because he believed in believer's baptism, and he believed that it was wrong to force people to believe something. So they killed Zwingli. The place of prison, I've been to the prison where they held Zwingli, and it was several blocks from the place of execution. And as he was marching to the place of execution, the priest was standing next to him trying to get him to repent, to recant of his Baptist beliefs. On the other side of Felix Manns was his mother and his brother. And his mother walked next to him the whole way saying, Felix, be steadfast. Felix, remain faithful. She marched her son to his death, encouraging faithfulness. Today in Christianity, if your child has to miss a soccer game to go to a church event, you think you're making a sacrifice. You see, our priorities are out of whack. The Lord's house no longer has priority. Biblical doctrine rightly understood, no longer has priority in our lives. How can we be bold? The Bible says, if the trumpet sounds an uncertain sound, how can they come? If the trumpet is calling for lunch or is it calling charge, which one is it? You see, 
The only way that Christians can know what to do is if we are speaking the truth in love. But our boldness is seen and felt, perceived. They saw it and they perceived it. It came over them that they had been with Jesus. They had their master's boldness. They had their master's authority. They had their master's scripture. And they had their master's power. Who are we? Lord, please help us. We live in uncertain times, but as you had Mordecai tell Esther, it could be that we have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Father, help us to be bold.